Good morning. Good to see you all again. Open up in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, we're going to start reading in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. And I'm going to trick you because I'm going to read all the way into chapter 7, verse 1. All right? So 6, 14 to 7, 1. So let's read together. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Perfecting holiness. <laughs> perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now that's a tall order. And it is an order. What do we even make of that? When we read it, do we, is this just, well, that's impossible. Forget that. I don't know what that means, but whatever it means, it clearly has nothing to do with me, right? What in the world is going on here? This passage really contains one of the most unfortunate chapter breaks in the Bible, okay? So you've got chapter six, right? And then you've got chapter seven. Remember these chapter breaks, these verse markings, all that stuff, that's just added. That's, that's, that's not, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire those things. Uh, we put them in there, men put them there so that we can find our way, right? Because unlike other many, many, many generations ago of the Jews, they memorized their scriptures <laughs> without benefit of, you know, chapter and verse markings, but we need them. And so we can find our way. And so these are added much later. This chapter break between chapter 6, verse 18, chapter 7, verse 1, really has the, the potential to totally undermine the teaching of the, and the truth of God. Do you see how this could happen, right? You're reading 2 Corinthians, and you're in chapter 6, and you read chapter 6, and you, come, you read God's commands to be separate from unbelievers. You see that? You read these promises at the end of chapter 6. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You read all those promises, right? You read those commands. You read those promises. Let's say it's Tuesday. 
Okay, Bible reading for Tuesday. You put your Bible down and you go out about your day, right? And then on Wednesday, or maybe uh, Thursday, or maybe next Tuesday, it all depends on how disciplined you are in reading your Bible. Next time you pick up your Bible, okay, chapter 7. And you turn to chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So what just happened? What just happened? Unless you have a very good memory, and you remember what you read in chapter 6, or unless you notice important words that we often just gloss over and, and not notice at all, like therefore, right? If you don't notice that word, if you do notice it, you'll remember, wait a minute, what's going on here? If you don't notice, therefore, you miss the whole point of this passage. You literally miss the point. This chapter break, what it obscures for us is literally the point of chapter 6, the end of chapter 6. Chapter 7, verse 1 is the point. It's the conclusion. It's the, it's the application. Whatever comes after the therefore is always the point. Don't miss these connections. What's the point of giving us these promises at the end of chapter six? The point of giving us the promises at the end of chapter six is chapter seven, verse one. Therefore, having these promises, I just, he told us about the promises, having these promises, beloved, what? Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, why does that seem so strange to us? It seems strange to us. Why? It seems strange because the Holy Spirit puts two things together that we we normally really want to be infinitely distant, right? The Holy Spirit puts together the promises of the gospel of the grace of God, right? And what? Fear. The command to fear God. And he doesn't just kind of happen to mention these things in like close enough proximity that they're just sort of together randomly. You know, the words just kind of appear on the same page, but there's no real connection between them. The grace of God, the promises of God, and the fear of God. He puts them together in such a way that they are intimately, perfectly, intentionally connected. They're inseparable. The grace of God, the promises of God, and the fear of God. And so the Holy Spirit says, since you have these gospel promises, since you have these promises of the grace of God, since you have these promises of the merciful fatherhood of God, since you have these promises, having these promises, he says, right? You have them, they're yours, you have them. Having these promises, what do you do with them? You use these promises to fear the Lord. 
And that does not make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to us because we've been taught that the gospel of God, right, the grace of God, and the fear of God are mutually exclusive. They do not and they cannot go together. That's what we've been taught. We want either or. Either fear or love. But both? We hear about the fear of the Lord. We read about it. We hear about it. Sometimes we even sing about it. But here, here's what we think. We think, wait a minute. 1 John 4, 4.18. 1 John 4.18 says what? There is no what? Anyone know? There is no fear in love. Right? It says, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Well, there you have it. Fear and love, according to Scripture, are incompatible. It's one or the other. You can't have both. Right? Or Romans 8.15. Uh, this might come to mind. You guys are preaching through Romans. I remember Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, that you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There you have it. Fear and love. Fear and fatherhood, right, are incompatible. This is what we think. And we think that Scripture is teaching that. Now, there is a kind of fear that is not godly. There is a kind of fear of God that actually is not godly because it has no faith and no love. This is the kind of fear that the demons have. Remember what James says? You, you believe God? Great. So do the demons. And they tremble. The demons tremble. They have a fear of God. But is there any faith or love in their fear? Absolutely not. There are a lot of godless people who have a fear of God. But it is not this kind of fear. So when Scripture commands us to fear the Lord... It's not talking about a slavish fear that has no faith or has no love in it. Even if we haven't actually been taught that fear and love never mix, we've certainly caught it from the atmosphere of American evangelicalism, from American Christianity. American Christianity oozes this notion that fear and love never embrace It comes out in how we have reduced the cross of Christ to a sentimental emblem that, that what it really teaches us is how lovely we are. Rather than a terrible demonstration of our wickedness and God's holiness, that's what we should always think when we think about the cross. 
It comes out in how we think about leadership in the church, leadership in the home. It comes out in how we worship, how we think about worship. In the fact that so often our worship is soft and sentimental and easy and has no place for fear and trembling. It doesn't really matter what church you grew up in, where you come from, what books you've read. If you're alive in America today, this is what we breathe in all the time. That fear and love are mutually exclusive. It is the air we breathe. It has to be one or the other, can't be both. How many times have you ever heard that when the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, right? Because you can't get away from the fact that the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord all the time. Okay, so have you ever heard this? When the Bible is talking about the fear of the Lord, okay, I know what it means. It's only talking about something like reverence and awe. Okay? Fear just means reverence and awe. The problem with that is when the Holy Spirit actually, you know, wrote the Bible, breathed the words of Scripture, he used particular words. In Hebrew, there's three words translated fear. And you know what those words mean? Fear. Sometimes terror. Sometimes dread. For example, Psalm 119, 120. David, he says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. That's not just a warm glow, you know, of like, oh, I'm worshiping God. He's trembling. There are other words in Hebrew for, for respect and for honor, like, Honor your father and mother, you know? In Greek, the word for fear or terror is phobeo, right? You know what that word means. Phobia. This is, this is what my wife experiences when she sees a spider. Seriously. Some of you, yeah. This is not reverence or awe. <laughs> She's terrified. So even, even with this distinction, both in Hebrew and Greek, so many Christians still claim, well, fear just means reverence. As if the Holy Spirit couldn't select the right word hundreds of times. Some would re rather believe that than believe that we must fear the Lord. And even still, reverence and awe? How, how is reverence and awe somehow softer than fear? We don't have the slightest clue what we're talking about. If we think reverence and awe is, oh, yeah, reverence and awe. At least it's not fear. It can't be fear. We don't have the slightest clue what we're talking about. We don't know the first thing about what reverence mean, means. If we think reverence is light and easy, comfortable, 
The tragedy of the modern American church is that we're no longer capable of being terrified. It does not compute. The church should become a place of terror again. Used to be. It should be a place where God always has to say to us, fear not. What? You ever notice this? The Bible, when God meets with people, almost always he says, what? Fear not. We think, oh, why do we have to fear? Why are you saying that? Now, where did this come from? Where do we get this? Why do we tone down the fear of the Lord? There's, a, there's several reasons. One of them is a doctrinal reason. A doctrinal reason. We have, America has embraced, American Christians have embraced a, a doctrine, a system of doctrine, really, has all kinds of implications. One of them is you, you take a meat cleaver and you chop the Bible in half, Old Testament, New Testament, right? And so Psalm, the Old Testament, we think, oh yeah, the Old Testament is filled with this command to fear the Lord, right? So Psalm 19.9 says this, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever, Psalm 19.9. Now there, we have study Bibles that tell us how to think about these things. And so some of you, maybe, I don't know, I don't know if any of you, do anyone know what the Schofield Reference Bible is? Schofield Reference Bible, right? That's a, it teaches a system of doctrine. And under the note of Psalm 19.9, it says this, the fear of the Lord is a phrase of Old Testament piety. It's a phrase of Old Testament piety. Okay? And that clearly means that you have Old Testament piety and you have New Testament piety, godliness, right? And they're different. Old Testament piety, fear of the Lord, as distinguished from New Testament piety. The fear of the Lord goes with the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord goes with law. The fear of the Lord is done. even though it says it's enduring forever in Psalm 19.9. In the New Testament, we're under grace. We don't, we don't fear God anymore. We love him. The problem, of course, with that is that is so completely, utterly unbiblical. It's so completely wrong to assert that the fear of the Lord is a unique Old Testament thing, the love of the Lord is a new uniquely New Testament thing, the love of God is all over the Old Testament. The fear of God is all over the New Testament. Luke 12, our Lord Jesus says, I say to you, I say to you my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, 
Fear him. Who is he telling us to fear? Who is he commanding us to fear? Some of us read this and think, oh, uh, the devil. The devil has no power to authority to cast you into hell. That's cartoon stuff. That's not real. God throws people into hell. And our Lord Jesus himself commands you to fear the Lord. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Completely together. Inseparable. Philippians 2, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with what? What? Fear and trembling. Hebrews 4, therefore, let us fear. If while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. 1 Peter 1, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. 1 Peter 2, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The fear of the Lord is not a phrase of Old Testament piety. Read the Bible. It's everywhere in the New Testament. The fear of the Lord is simply a phrase of piety, period, godliness. We've allowed ourselves to believe that New, New Testament Christians should not fear the Lord. Another reason we can't fathom both fearing and loving God is that most of us have grown up with authorities who were either tyrants or pushovers. All right, think about this for a second. We, we have a hard time putting together fearing and loving the same person because we've either had tyrants or pushovers as authorities, our teachers, our parents, or our pastors. We're either self-centered autocrats who cared nothing but for their own, getting their own way, right? Or there were weak men who pandered to us and loved themselves too much to say no. And so most of us were never taught to see in our Father's eyes, the wrath of God. And to run to him when we were in trouble. To run to him when we were in pain. We, we can't see those things together. So we've been trained that, you know, like oil and water, fear and love don't mix. And so we become men and women who have no fear of God before our eyes. A third reason, 
that we're filled with, our churches are filled with people who don't fear the Lord is, has to do with how we evangelize. How many of us even have came to the Lord? Think of the typical evangelistic appeals of the last 150 years or so. There's a line that many of you have heard, maybe you've used it, right? God loves you, and what? Has a wonderful plan for your life, okay? So this is, that's like the, the essence, the heart of our evangelism for the last 100 years. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The, the evangelical church is almost completely abandoned. I would say really probably completely abandoned. What our forefathers called law work. Law work. It's talking about the law of God. We have abandoned the kind of preaching, the kind of evangelism that strips people bare. We've stopped declaring to unregenerate people, right? Unbelievers. We've stopped declaring to unbelievers that there is a, a holy God in heaven who has holy laws that they must obey, that they are under judgment for not obeying. We're afraid of being called legalists. So we've, we've, we've completely abandoned the kind of preaching and evangelism that in the past actually did something like great awakenings, true and lasting conversions. Our evangelism is all about forgiveness and heaven and wonderful plans, a wonderful life. We've stopped telling unregenerate people that God requires them to obey. We've stopped telling them that God will judge them because they don't obey. That this is what their problem is. Their problem is not that they have a bad life. The problem is that they, are, they disobey God. God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So we've inoculated our converts against the fear of the Lord. We've vaccinated them against the fear of the Lord. It's the one thing they can't catch. Evangelism in the modern church never starts with the law of God and the holiness of God and the demands of God and the wrath of God and the certain inevitable, terrible judgment of God. We start with the love of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. Now, what kind of Christian does that produce? So I'm going to, I never do this, I'm going to read to you from a book. All right. This is a book by Ian Murray called The Old Evangelicalism, Old Truths for a New Awakening. It's a really great book. He's talking about this problem. Here's what he says. Where the gospel is presented solely as forgiveness. Okay, are you listening? Where the gospel is presented just purely as forgiveness only. Only as a change of status before God it may appeal to the self-interest of the unregenerate. A person may believe that message and still be content to live an unchanged life. He becomes a Christian, 
and yet knows no moral, ethical revolution. But where the conscience is more thoroughly dealt with by the law of God, a larger need comes into view and one which forgiveness alone would not answer. There must also be a change of nature, a deliverance from self, a new life. The desire of a true convert is that he may never sin again. Such a person will pray as William Wilberforce once prayed, Oh God, deliver me from myself. He says the preaching of the law, he's talking about how we got here, the preaching of the law ceased to be regarded as part of evangelism. And with that omission came a disappearing sense of sin. That in turn led to the idea of conversion, not as deliverance from the power of sin, but as something much less. And when conviction of sin was found to be absent in gospel hearers, other reasons too often came to be proposed to justify their need of faith in Christ. In other words, if your biggest problem is not, you are damned before the wrath of God and you need to be saved from God, from the judgment of God. If that's not really the issue, then what do I need the gospel for? Oh, I need the gospel to have a wonderful life. The result has been converts who never knew that the fear of, of God is the beginning of wisdom and who never learned to say, oh, how I love your law. As the numbers of such people grew, so the churches became little different in life from the world. This is how we got here. Later, Murray quotes uh, an English pastor, late 1700s, guy named Thomas Scott. He was a convert of John Newton. You know how we sing Amazing Grace? Remember, you know what? Remember the line in Amazing Grace? I think it's verse two. Was, Twas grace that taught my heart to what? To fear. Here's Thomas Scott. He says this. He explains how we got to where we are today. Leave out the holy character of God. Leave out the holy excellence of his law, the holy condemnation to which transgressors are doomed. Leave out the holy loveliness of the Savior's character, the holy nature of redemption, the holy tendency of Christ's doctrine, and the holy tempers and conduct of all true believers. So leave all that out. Then dress up a scheme of religion of this unholy sort, represent mankind in a pitiable condition rather through misfortune than crime, speak much of Christ's bleeding love to them, of his agonies in the garden and on the cross without showing the need for the, or the nature of satisfaction for sin. Speak of his present glory and of his compassion for poor sinners, of the freeness with which he dispenses pardons of the privileges which believers enjoy here and of the happiness and glory reserved for them hereafter. Clog this with nothing about regeneration and sanctification. Don't clog it up with your need to be born again or to live a holy life. Or represent holiness as somewhat else than conformity to the holy character and law of God. 
What does that get us? He says, you do that, you make up a plausible gospel. Calculated to humor the pride, soothe the consciences, engage the hearts and raise the affections of natural men who love nobody but themselves. Isn't that us? Isn't that what we all gravitate towards? Isn't that what's accepted as normal in the church today? So, when we come to a passage of Scripture like 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, it's almost inevitable that we miss the connection between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So, with all that in mind, I'm going to read this again. And I want you to hear it through all of that lens, okay? Read it through all of that. Here's what it says. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God has given you this his sweet and gracious and magnificent gospel promises. Why? So that you can use those promises to deepen and intensify your fear. This is the exact opposite of all of our assumptions today. We assume that God has given us his sweet and gracious and magnificent gospel promises so that we can use those promises to lessen and diminish our fear. Which also means that we assume God has given us his sweet and gracious, magnificent gospel promises so that we can use those promises to lessen and diminish our what? Our obedience. Really, that's what it all boils down to. Because even the fear of God is not the ultimate end, the ultimate goal in 2 Corinthians 7.1, the ultimate end, the goal the Holy Spirit is driving us to is what? It's our obedience. That is the ultimate end. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So he gives us his gospel promises so that we will fear him. And he commands us to fear him so that we will obey him. That's what he's saying. 
We must use these promises. God's promises. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters. I'll, I'll dwell with you. We use those promises so that we will fear him, so that we will obey him. To cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And so fear and love embrace. Fear and love embrace in the godly. This is what godliness is. It's the combination of the fear of God and the love of God. There can be no godliness apart from both loving and fearing God. This is why all through Scripture, when the Holy Spirit wants to speak of the height of depravity or the depth of depravity, what does he say? There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's like as bad as you can get. Now, we're all used to seeing the connection between godliness and the love of God. I hope we're used to this. Jesus says it all the time. If you love me, keep my commandments. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Clearly, there's a connection between loving God and obeying God, right? What about the connection between godliness and the fear of God? Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The very essence of the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16, 6, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Do you want to keep away from evil? Fear the Lord. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. What does that look like? Do you remember Joseph, the Old Testament, Joseph? Think about him. This is what it looks like. Joseph, in the face of incredibly intense temptation, Right? The, his boss's wife day after day after day after day trying to seduce him to sin. And what does Joseph say? Do you remember? How, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? What does that mean? Joseph what? He fears the Lord. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? It looks like King David, when David did sin against God, greatly against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. You know the story. Psalm 51. What does David say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I know my transgressions. My sin is right in my face. You are justified when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. 
Do your sins cause you to tremble before a holy God? Or have you twisted Scripture so much that the gospel makes you without compunction of conscience? Does the gospel in your mind teach you, oh, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to be like Joseph. I don't have to be like David. I don't have to fear the Lord. What do you give yourself to? Have you used the gospel? All these promises of the gospel, have you used them? Not as a tool to fight your sin, but as an excuse to make a truce with your sin. What's the smell of your life? Is there any weight? Is there any gravity, sobriety? Do you know the fear of the Lord? If you don't know the fear of the Lord, you don't know the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, you don't love him. If you want to have life and peace, you must fear the Lord. If you want to know his blessings, if you want to know the blessings of the Lord, you must fear him. If you want to know his compassion, you must fear him. Listen to this, and I'm done. Psalm 103. The Lord has not dwelt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That's the gospel, right? He has not treated us as our sins deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. These things aren't at odds with each other. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. These things aren't at odds with each other. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we're just dust. And as for man, his days are like grass as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it's no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Psalm 128, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it'll be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have to fear the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? 
Let's pray. Ask God to help us. Father, would you please help us? We, we, are, we are so much the product of our time and our place. We are light and flippant and godless. We do not fear you as we ought. We make light of our sins. We make light of you. Would you please help us, we pray. Would you show us your, your majesty, your glory, your power, your holiness, and let us fear you. Please, Lord, bless us with the gift of fearing you. Do this in us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.